listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. The boom. After World War I, the economy was booming, as were the life of workers. Rising wages, rising profits, and new consumer products for the working class, such as refrigerators, cars, radios, phonographs, even electricity and indoor plumbing, making the 1920s a great time for the working class. But there was problems. Finding work itself was easier as the war reduced immigration than because of a quota system that restricted the number of workers coming from southern and eastern Europe, falling from 5 million per year before the war to about 150,000 during and after the war. Many employers returned to the Taylorism of the Progressive Era, even the most skeptical of the old dog-eat-dog theory are being gradually persuaded from the sheer cold pressure of the facts that war doesn't pay in this complicated world of ours. A well-ran plant is dependent more and more upon the management of men than upon the organizing of machines, said one Chamber of Commerce leader. G. Elton Mayo, an Australian sociologist and organizational theorist, conducted research between 1924 and 1932 at Hawthorne Telephone Company, just outside Chicago. By adjusting the lighting to the levels the workers preferred, he found that production increased. His conclusion was employees responded positively to being noticed and having something done on their behalf. Certain factors such as praise from the supervisor, simple job perks, the feeling camaraderie with co-workers actually appeared to outweigh wages as integers of overall worker happiness. What became known as welfare capitalism the giving of paid vacations, bonuses, pensions, plans, picnics, and sporting events helped the open shop fight. Chairman Albert Gary of U.S. Steel, which spent $10 million a year on employee benefits in the 1920s, summed up the philosophy saying, because it's the way men ought to be treated and because it pays to treat men in that way. By 1926, there were about 400 company unions nationwide, about one-half the total number of independent trade unions affiliated with the AFL, boasting membership of 1,370,000. Organized labor also lost on the legal front. The Clayton Act of 1914 had attempted to free unions from the threat of antitrust actions and to permit standard labor practices such as peaceful strikes picketing, and secondary boycotts. It was gutted in 1922 by unfavorable Supreme Court decisions. 
thus allowing yellow dog contracts and injunctions. The 1920s saw several hundred anti-union injunctions granted by state and federal courts. In 1923, the court ruled on minimum wage stating that workers had a right to a living wage, but an employer is under no obligation to offer one, citing the liberty of contract, a concept that the constitutional right to make contractual arrangements without government interference are regulations. Overall, the decade lifted the American worker upward out of poverty to a new era of consumerism, and the worker approached middle class. But it left the same dynamic in which management held all the authority and the worker still lacked the right to collective bargaining. It also left a weakness that soon would be revealed. A business's generosity towards its workers only lasted so long as it was profitable to be so. All the benefits and perks vanished as the economy collapsed in 1930. Many companies tried to honor President Hoover's request to not cut wages and many cut hours so as to avoid layoffs, but it was to no avail. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said on assuming the presidency in 1933, our economic condition, a depression so deep that it is without precedent in modern history. Roosevelt had used the expression a new deal to the American people at the 1932 Democratic Convention where he was chosen as his party's candidate and pledged that the federal government has always had and still has a continuing responsibility for the broader public welfare. That responsibility would be tested at once for the day he took office between one-third and one-half of American workers lacked a job. Tens of thousands of homes and farms were in foreclosure. Banks had failed and in the cities of traditional civic and church-based charities had ran out of resources to help the indigent. What marked Roosevelt's New Deal from the start was its willingness to challenge the moneyed interest, the economic realists, as the president called them, and to put the U.S. government to work solving the problems of everyday people. The power of the few to manage the economic life of the nation, Roosevelt would tell Congress, must be diffused among the many or be transferred to the public and its democratically responsible government. Despite concerns, Roosevelt was not out to revive the antitrust antagonism of prior decades. His desire was to obtain results. He would work with the corporations with the big city political machines and with workers and their unions. The crisis was immense, a national emergency as it was described in the preamble to the National Industrial Recovery Act, also known as the NIRA, soon rolled out by Congress. The NIRA created an enforcement agency in the National Recovery Administration which was to frame a working partnership between business and government to get the nation's economy back on track. In March 1932, the Norris-LaGuardia Act 
did away with yellow dog contracts, and most importantly, removed the court from labor disputes. Thus, the threat of injunctions, which removed the threat of intrusion of the militia or U.S. soldiers to enforce an injunction. This opened the door for unions to use strikes, boycotts, and maneuver more spontaneously, but still, other than for railroad workers whose rights to union membership under the Railway Labor Act of 1926, most employees could still be dismissed for union affiliation or forced into company unions, and the right to collective bargaining had yet to be secured. Roosevelt and Labor Secretary Francis Perkins did not perceive a need for workers' representations or collective bargaining elements in the New Deal. Labor unions were generally weak, and it appeared the government could do more for workers directly than by empowering unions. Roosevelt said, No business which depends for existence on paying less than a living wage to its workers has any right to continue in this country. But he was also cautious about ceding too much authority to workers' organizations. In 1933, Perkins was touring the still-making facility at Homestead, Pennsylvania. When she seen a group of still workers, the mayor told her she could not give a speech at City Hall. Perkins suggested they go to the city park. The mayor said it was illegal to do speeches in a city park. She spied a post office and told the mayor, as Secretary of Labor, she was allowed to give speeches wherever a U.S. flag was flying. So standing on a chair in the middle of the lobby, she spoke to the workers and listened to their concerns. The first woman cabinet member in the country's history, Perkins received scrutiny from the press. It was said her clothes looked as though they had been designed by the Bureau of Standards. She proved a staunch advocate for unions, particularly as she became impressed by their response to the organizing opportunities afforded by the New Deal. Senator Robert Wagner of New York and the UMW's John Lewis also contributed to the discussion of the administration's labor strategy. Wagner thought the only way out of the depression required kickstarting industry by increasing consumer purchasing power, which could only be done by turning workers once again into buyers. Reducing unemployment meant stabilizing the workforce, a function both men felt organized labor could provide. The idea was that secure means of redress in place, labor unions would gain confidence and their leaders would not be driven to prove their mettle through strikes or the threat of strikes. And as labor developed new habits of restraint and enjoyed reasonable expectations of fair contract negotiations, so too would management grow less paranoid and cease trying to disrupt workers from organizing.
On February 17, 1933, Lewis went before the Senate Finance Committee to suggest emergency powers for the government to safeguard collective bargaining and oversee national economic strategies. Lewis's words could sway others as he was Labor's most recognizable national figure. He first became popular in 1919 when he had refused his own rank and files demand for a coal strike, saying, We are Americans. We cannot fight our government. Now he wanted the government to fight for Americans. UMW economicist W. Jet Back, an advisor and speechwriter for Lewis, worked with Perkins, Senator Wagner, and Wagner's aide, Simon Rifkin, among others, to devise the NIRA's Section 7, parentheses A, which gave workers the right to organize and bargain collectively through representation of their own choosing. President Roosevelt wants you to join the union, said Lewis, which was widely disseminated by posters and lapel buttons. This annoyed the president. One and a half million new members joined the AFL between June and October 1933, and 3,537 new locals were created. Other organizations experienced comparable growth, including the UMW. Since the late 1920s, the Communist Party USA had viewed the rapidly growing U.S. economy as ripe for crisis or collapse and possibly some form of workers' upheaval. The start of the Depression in October 1929 surpassed even the party's expectations. Wages fell precipitously in Alabama textile mills as they did in the major industries of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. Tens of thousands of jobs were lost. And for those fortunate enough to have work, the available days and hours of employment were reduced. The Ford Motor Company laid off 90,000 of its 130,000 workers between March 1929 and August 1931. Briggs Manufacturing Company cut most of its employees to half days, for which men earned 10 cents an hour and women 4 cents. The communists seeing desperation as well as opportunity in such widely shared pain launched the Trade Unity League, T-U-U-L. T-U-U-L focused on everyday goals such as improved wages and conditions. Employers, the local press, and patriot organizations reacted with animosity to the communist interlopers. Management frequently used their presence as an excuse to void any chance of reasonable negotiations or settlements with workers. Several of these struggles turned violent. In Gastonia, North Carolina, in 1929, the local police chief and a young union songwriter named Allo May Wiggins were killed when a communist-led union took on textile mill interests and vigilantes. Dozens of people were wounded and 11 workers were sent to prison. The party also supported the unemployed by organizing them into the unemployed councils. There were 15 million unemployed by March 1933, up from 500,000 in the spring of 1929. 
The lack of available public and private relief greatly enabled recruitment. The looting of bread trucks and other food sources by the homeless and unemployed had become an ugly feature of the Depression's early years, and the councils introduced a degree of purpose and even civility to these individuals urgent for fundamental needs. They staged rent strikes and helped tenements avoid evictions, showed poor residents how to turn their gas back on when it was shut off by a public utility, raised money through such traditional means as raffles, dances, and bingo parties, often going with a person refused assistance in numbers, occupying agencies' offices, and refusing to leave. On March 6, 1930, the council held massive public demonstrations which it named International Unemployment Day. The Communist Party USA claimed one million participants. The councils brought the unemployed closer to alignment with the labor through the TUUL and their plea for help had become not so much a call for immediate relief, although that was important as a demand for lasting government reforms. Federally administered unemployment insurance and public works programs. The existing system of relief based on local public and private methods were designed for small numbers of the needy and were totally inadequate for dealing with a country-wide emergency. When Congress rebuffed the delegation the council had sent in February 1931, the organization held a hunger march on Washington, D.C. on December 6th of that year. They marched again in December 1932, after Roosevelt's election, to remind the incoming president of the persisting crisis for those without work. From the World Congress was heard the call for what became known as the Popular Front, an anti-fascist alliance of socialists, communists and progressive forces in the U.S., including the labor movement. Browder, general secretary of the CPUSA, reassured Congress that a federal legislative cure granting security to the jobless was fundamentally American. The frontline trench today in the battle for preserving a measure of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in this country. One of the Communists' most significant contributions to the New Deal, the belief that the remedy for the unfavorable circumstances that befell a worker or any citizen in America did not lie with him or her alone, but could and should be alleviated with the help of the national government. Employers began to exploit the vagueness of the new law. Questions that Section 7A left unresolved included the job status of older workers, how employees' representatives were to be chosen, and whether a union elected by workers had to be recognized by an employer. The company union or employee representation plan proved a nifty subterfuge, a means to frustrate Section 7A by appearing to meet its mandate for collective bargaining yet without actually offering true bargaining power to the employees.
podcast with your family and friends. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.